Yo, yo, everyone. Welcome back to the podcast. We've been on a bit of a hiatus, but I'm starting off with a bit of a legend today. Um, I met this man, Shahan, actually doing like a little job at Macquarie. And he is a philosophy slash psychology giga chat. And you will catch bro always posting some deep and meaningful quotes to his stories. Man is definitely a reader. He's definitely got some good stuff going. He's got amazing singer, singing voice as well. And like, you know, when you just find a bro that you want to have a chat with, this this is the bro. So welcome to the podcast tonight, Shahan. Thank you. Thank you. I love the flattering descriptions. I appreciate it. I appreciate it. <laughs> Shahan, I've got a question, man. I'm, I'm, I'll direct it. We'll get, we'll get straight into the meat of it. Like, bro, what's, got, what's caught your fancy as of recent? Like in in philosophy or psychology or like concepts like that, what's caught your fancy? Well, I think recently I've been looking a lot into philosophy of religion, which is something I was it was a sort of latent thing in my mind. I, I'd always been interested in sort of theology and stuff like that, but I'd put it off for a long time. I think this year and last year I started getting into it more. Um, the question became a bit more prevalent for me for a variety of reasons. But yeah, no, that's something I've been looking into. Um, I think more specifically right now. I'm really grappling with things like the problem of evil. That's like a really big overarching thing. So that's one thing in the philosophy field, more specifically philosophy of religion. Um, and then I guess somewhat related, which is I was looking into the whole theology thing. And it's like, what are arguments for this sort of, you know, a deity, et cetera. And then it got me thinking about a question that I used to think a lot about, but sort of uh, went away from for a while, which is, not just how do we know a deity exists or this exists, but how do we know full stop? So I started going back. I went to the very basics of epistemology. Um, and I think this unit, the, I'm doing a unit next semester, um, which will address stuff like that. So I think um, there's one about knowledge, language, and power. Mm-hmm. And it's talking about how do we know things? What do we trust? How do we create knowledge? And like, can we know things, for example? And so those are just grappling with a lot of these questions. Uh, in terms of psychology, it's a bit of, taken a bit of a hold. I think this semester I was I went full four philosophy units and I was like I'm gonna take a bit of a psych break, just go right back to my roots, just focus on the philosophical stuff for now. So yeah, that's sort of a little summary of what I've been up to recently. That is beast, man. And dude, like I don't know, like, I just thought it'd be cool to reflect on on this next point. Like, why do you go after and 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 question these things? Like, what? Why are you curious about it? Like, is there a reason? Oh, that's, that's, oh, that would take a long time to answer. I'm trying to think, okay, why, why would I be? Mm, if I, if I dig back, if I go back to the start of when I started, like, you know, thinking about like all this random stuff, um, I guess there was a sort of dissatisfaction. I can give like a Freudian analytical answer. I can give just to a personal one. I won't give the Freudian one yet. We won't do Freud yet, but, um, Going back, I think just there's a general dissatisfaction, and like it's sort of like the you can you can trace it to a lot of like religious philosophical schools of thinking. The sort of the lack that people have that you know yearning. Um, I know one of my friends. Um, he has this awesome quote. He's like he said. Um, I don't know if he took it from someone, but he said, "Man is the finite being that yearns for the infinite." There's like a gap, and so we have this like yearning like for something more, something transcendent, typically, I'd say. Um, but we're sort of contained to more finite sort of modes of being, I guess. And 
um, a lot of people, I would say, have that yearning. I don't want to universalize it, but I'd say a lot of people have that yearning and you can tackle it in different ways. Um, I don't want to make like evaluative claims on which way is the best or whatever, but it's just that some people, you know, you can tackle that through, you know, accumulation. You can tackle it through relationships. You can tackle it through all kinds of things. But I think one of the ways that people have done that in history is by trying to ask those big questions, trying to get to this thing called truth, you know, because it, it almost gives you a sense of immortality. If you if you can connect yourself to some uh, eternal sort of idea, you kind of indirectly become immortal. And that's sort of one of the ways people think about it. It's like, where, where do all these questions come from? Well, it comes from the fact that we are mortal and we die and we want to find the answers to these things and we want to be immortal in a way. And the way to become immortal is to, you know, attach ourselves to more immortal, eternal things, you know, whether that's, you know, a deity, a classic example, or truth, family, blah, 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 the state, whatever. And so I, I think it comes down to that. It's like a dissatisfaction with just going about and not worrying about anything. I mean, I've tried, honestly, it's not even like a thing where I'm proud of it. Like I would love to, sometimes as many times I'd sit around, I'm like, I wish I didn't care about this stuff because I could do so many more things right now rather than worrying about this stuff. But what times where I try to completely ignore it, it just becomes a bit dull and annoying and I get a bit angsty about it. And I, I'm like, no, I, this is something I want to, I want to waste my time usefully, if you will, and look at all these like questions, even if it doesn't get me anywhere eventually, it's just that process. It's interesting to me. Um, but then obviously want to balance that and not get too analytic because that becomes a bit depressing, but you know, so that's a brief overall answer. Yeah. Yeah, bro. Damn. There's a lot, there's a lot going on there. Hmm. Like the whole yearning point and like the, the, the finite searching for something larger, something beyond oneself. Yeah. I think that's pretty powerful. Do you feel like in your philosophical musings in your contemplations, do you feel like your life has gotten better or worse. I know that's a that's Ooh. a black and white, but like yeah, 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 yeah. But like, do you feel like is the juice is the juice worth the squeeze? Yeah, that's a good way to think of it. Um, so that's a, yeah, like you said, it's a sort of it's placing it along one axis, good and bad. So I don't know if I would think of it like that. I'd say it depends on the day you ask me. Some days I'll tell you like man, I wish I never like bothered. But then even if you catch me on those days, I will still say like, no, I don't want to, you know, it's, I'm glad I did. It's, it's hard. It's like, it's, it's, it, it causes a great deal of anguish a lot, but it's also, it's very rewarding and it's very meaningful. And I think, I don't think people should hide from anguish or suffering. I think people should search for meaning if, and even if it causes some level of discomfort or suffering, mm-hmm. um, not just because, you know, I'm like a sigma and I think suffering builds you and whatever like that, but also because I think suffering's unavoidable anyways. And it, to me, it becomes a thing of, are you going to sort of unconsciously suffer and have suffering choose you or will you choose your suffering? I think mm-hmm. being able to choose your suffering is a bit more, a better choice, being able to uh, imbue order into it and, you know, manage it yourself. It gives you autonomy when you're doing it. So you got to choose your sufferings. Um, otherwise your sufferings choose you. And that's a bit more confronting that's that's a vague that's very vague but you get the general idea i'm going for to your question i didn't answer your question i'd say overall i'm i am i enjoy it and i'm glad that i you know had that propensity wherever it came from um to look into these things and i'm still very early on that trip um but then i also recognize um 
I never let myself think of it as like, oh, I'm better than people. Like, because I've re- like, even through reason, like there was a point where I was like that. I was very pretentious and um, I still am. But like, there was a point when I was really bad and it was like, oh, I'm so woke or whatever. Like I've, I've awoken. It's like, I realized that's not the state you can be in. That's just not, it's like Socrates. Like I know that I know nothing. The more I've looked into this stuff, the more I've actually become reserved in everything I say and I have opinions on, because it's like, once you like, you read like a sentence on a topic, you think you know everything, you read two or three, you're like, I know nothing about this. There's so much in this that I can, it just, it's like this, it's, 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 it's so much, it's a lot of fun, but it can definitely be overdone. So I, I think I'm going to give you like a neutral yes and no answer to that just a little bit of a cop out. Yeah. yeah. I like that. I like that answer. I feel like, um, I feel similar. And it's funny how you said like different days, different things. Mm. Um, and dude, like for philosophy bros, like, I think we're, we're definitely a, a breed, right? Mm. What do you, what do you feel like? Like what would do good for philosophy bros? Like say, say if each character has like a flaw and like the archetype is a philosophy bro, mm. what, what would be the thing that you would just suggest to all us philosophy bros and like because I've, I've been trying to reflect on it on myself what am i um like what am i missing here should i be doing something should i can like you know do you know what i mean i don't know so i'll pass it to you you can deal with that as you may so are you saying like what's what advice i would give to philosophy bros yeah okay okay so the first thing that comes to mind there's, there's we could have like 10 hour convo on this alone but the first thing that comes to mind would be to not let it become an identity. I think a lot of people let that happen with a lot of things. And I think there might be exceptions, but generally it's it's good to be careful when you're trying to delve into something to the point that it becomes like your, your identity is on the line. So an example would be sort of like politics. That's just your cliche example. People, when, when I'm talking to somebody about anything, if they're able to talk about it and you can tell that they've sort of staked their like their images of themselves on it in the sense that I am who I am because I believe in this thing I think that's a slippery slope so and you see that a lot I think it's just how humans are it's just what we do so it's not it's not anyone's fault but you I think it's important to be conscious of that so when you're when you're dealing with ideas with exceptions do not let any idea that you see just like be the source of your identity because it, it, it can lead to, well, first it's just bad for dialogue. You can't talk to anyone. Um, and two, you don't realize all the biases that are going into it. You just, it's stressful. Like, you know, trying to uphold an idea because you think it maintains your being. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's one thing with philosophy. I notice I do a lot. Um, and I know a lot of people do. Like I remember when I was like in my hardcore Nietzsche phase, it became like, he became like, my representative he became my god like he was fully my god i would like quote him in everything if people attacked him they were attacking me and so i had to defend him he was like my father right so and i and i looking back i'm like that's cute and all i feel like everyone has that phase but you can't let that happen i think it's not i don't think it's a good idea to let that happen it just makes your worldview very narrow it, it shades your it, like interactions with people in a really weird way as well um and so that's one thing so don't let it become all encompassing don't let don't let the fact that you start you like philosophy like this thing become your sole source of like purpose and identity um because i feel like once you free yourself from those shackles of like this sustains me it becomes easier to engage in it it's sort of like the analogy of like 
a test or studying becomes easier when you're not thinking about, I need to pass this. It's like, you can just study it freely. You're not shackled to some like obligation to it. Um, so that's, so that's sort of the idea. And, and sort of the opposite side of the coin to that would be um, naturally, I think if you unhinge that sort of identity thing on the philosophy, you're able to engage in it more charitably and more freely. And you're also, what was I going to say? I completely blanked. You're also able to, yeah, you're able to be more practical. Um, so philosophy has that cliche um, stereotype of just being impractical and, you know, abstract and not helpful. Um, and I think that's more likely to happen. I think that's correlated to this tendency for people to like really get deep into it and like really push themselves up and give themselves identity and being from it because naturally, and I, maybe I'm just drawing on myself here, but if you, if you get too deep into it and you, you like derive meaning from it, you start to think like, okay, I want to go down these rabbit holes and like start talking language that no one understands. And then like you get to a point where you like you and like three other people in the world can understand what you're saying and you feel really special. And that specialty makes you feel that like cool and like it affirms your identity. You feel like you're part of something, but then you sort of lose the point. Like at some point, like you think of like the original Greek philosophers and they're just like, the question we want to answer is how to live a good life. Generally, like they had other questions, but like one of the big questions, how do we live a good life? They just wanted a, a general accessible thing um, or mode through which to live life good. And if you start getting all attached to it in this way and you become a very esoteric, it's a pretty like, sort of trend in a lot of young people that become very esoteric. They're like, I know every, you know, you sort of lose purpose of that original goal. And so and you just overthink everything, become over analytical and you forget that the point of this was to serve life, not the other way around. Don't let it become mm-hmm. like your master, your idol. It's meant to serve you, right? Um and I, I think you can apply that to a lot of things. You know, people do that to uni. They start to like, granted economic sort of circumstances. I, I understand that. But with uni and stuff, it's like I, I notice people, they get anxious about it as if it's like some sort of like, this is me, like uni is me. Whereas it's like, no, no, no. Uni is meant to sit, like help you to get to some end, but it's not the end itself. Mm-hmm. And it's like when we think about projects on the side that we do, like, I don't know, learning a guitar no one, if they miss a guitar practice, unless maybe there's some people, but no one, if they miss a guitar practice, like, oh no, like, bro, like, oh, like, but with uni or like the more mainstream sort of things, it's like they become the markers of your identity. And so you can do that with philosophy too, or any study or any interest, and it starts ruling you other rather than serving you in some way. So yeah, that's what I'd be like. I'd say don't, don't get it. Don't let it attach. Don't attach your identity to it too much. Stay practical. You're allowed to have fun still. It doesn't, it's not, it's not a sign of a, an uneducated uh, proletarian man to enjoy himself, just enjoy the simple things, you know? Um, Yeah. That's sort of the general advice. Be practical. Don't, don't let it become an abstract like thing that you're just doing, like talking big words or whatever. Dude, that's such a valid and powerful critique. Like, I feel like that's a great one. I I wish I I heard that earlier, but I think we all end up, fig- most of us end up figuring it out just like yeah. when life starts sucking. You're like, oh, okay, okay, yeah. I, you know, <laughs> just yeah, yeah, yeah. look to it. Um, but you said something that really struck me. Um, they, they just want a good life, accessible. And you also said serving of life. Mm. And I feel like, um, you know, sometimes when things, some, like, you know, when you get caught in your mind traps, it's very slippery because you don't know because it's just like you're so dug yeah. into it you know what i mean and that's just your reality 
but serving of life and 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 living a good life could could you speak to that what what do you see of that currently so are you saying what do i think of how to live a good life or the concept in general of like serving a good life the philosophy of serving a good life yeah well like how to live a good life and what did you mean by serving life okay so i'll start with the serving life thing so i was talking about how a lot of things can i'll use the word idol can become sort of idols in a way right like certain things should be means towards ends like if you're playing a guitar um that's great um but ultimately you're trying to you're playing that guitar ultimately to serve some end which is your general fulfillment right um now ironically this is a different discussion but i don't think that people should think about things in that way like you shouldn't do things be like this is going to serve my ultimate fulfillment. That's very mechanical. I don't think it's an effective way. And I think that actually undermines what you're trying to do. It's sort of like you have to not think of it that way for it to work. But then on the other extreme is becoming so completely um, dug into something that you forget completely what it's meant to serve and you start going against that. Um, And there's so many examples you could use of this. It's like, the 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 person who works constantly and doesn't see their family or friends or whatever and they're like no i need to work it's like what was think about what that work what the end goal of that work was it's to make money okay what's the end goal of the money oh it's to do these things what's the end goal of that and you, you keep like doing these you keep asking and it goes up eventually to like the things that you've started neglecting right i want to earn uh okay why do you earn to provide for my family Okay, but you're neglecting your family, right? And it's, you, you see how you've sort of shifted the end to the means, like the means has become the end rather than what it's supposed to serve. Mm-hmm. And so I think that can happen as well with any sort of interest. So philosophy, you, you initially start off, like usually, you know, I know a lot of people, you, you have a problem. Um, what is a problem? It means you've, hin- you've been hindered in some way. You want to fix things. You want your life to be better. And so you turn to the philosophers. And then you start reading them. You're like, and a lot of them, you know, give you advice and all this. And then at some point without realizing you shift into, you shift from, okay, how do I live a good life to just, how do I think about this specific thing in this specific field about this specific thing? And it's like, yes, that's good. Um, And there's a way to do that. But the extreme is like forgetting why you started this whole thing in the first place and stressing yourself and making yourself crazy about something philosophical because you're like no i need to know this i don't know what's going on i don't know like all this stuff right (laughs) Um, like an analysis paralysis and then you sit back sometimes and i'll do that sometimes i'll sit back and i'll i'll look at it and i'll just take a deep breath and think okay why am i why am i doing this let me just retrace why am i doing this why do i enjoy this stuff why do i like learning about it and there is there is value to the idea of like i don't want to just reduce philosophy to like oh it makes you happy but like it's there's value in knowledge in of itself, like as just an end in itself. But I think it's always, it's always about balance to me. Like you have to be able to also sit back and be like, look, this philosophy stuff is great, but I also have to remember one of the ultimate end goals is to have some level of flourishment and fulfillment. Now you can question that. Maybe some people will say, no, fulfillment isn't the end goal, like other discussion. But generally I'd say most people, they're trying to aim towards that. And so 
just don't let it rule you, right? It's it's meant to be a, a service. It's not meant to be your king or your god. It's something you do that you enjoy. So it's it's sort of that. You you can like have an assessment of yourself and think, am I like, is this philosophy stuff? Is this is this my is my interest just any interest? Is it serving me? Uh, is it is it am I using it towards an end or is it is it started to rule me? Is it like my master now and I, you know, I feel like I'm incomplete without it and I need to do everything for it. I would give up anything for it. Like, so there's a there's a line you cross where it becomes I would say a bit neurotic, and then it can go downhill because you start you know you just thinking all the about it, all the stuff you're always paralyzed by it. You're you can't even engage with people anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, stuff like that and. Yeah, I think that engagement thing is a big one as well. It links into just like you'll notice a this there's this like sort of there's this recurring like quote from a lot of philosophers which is like wisdom correlates something like wisdom correlates to unhappiness. And it's like this goes back to like biblical literature. I know Ecclesiastes, I think Solomon says something like wisdom leads to I don't know the exact quote, but he said the same thing. He's like wisdom is correlated to unhappiness. So it's like ancient. They knew this. They knew this back then. He was like having an existential crisis. And he's like, all wisdom equals unhappy. Um, you know, and then you got the modern writers, like all these things. He's like, oh, the more wise you are, the more unhappy you are. And it's like, one, we have to question that assumption. I originally really liked Nietzsche because he questioned that assumption. He's like, does wisdom lead to unhappiness or is your idea of wisdom a bit weird? Like, is this specific wisdom that you're attaching yourself to just a weird, a crooked type? So he questions the assumption, which I really like. Um, I would suggest anyone to read him for that, for that alone, for many other reasons. But anyway, I won't, I won't fanboy Nietzsche right now. Um, <laughs> but also, I've noticed, I, I can see this in myself and sometimes others. People will see that and they'll internalize this idea that if you're unhappy, it means you're smart. They'll reverse it. And then they'll think that you'll get into this like sort of mindset where you're like, oh, I'm not like other people. I'm miserable, but I understand the world and everything, right? <laughs> and you get into that sort of tendency and it's like, that is a sign to me that you've let it become your master and you've internalized it way too much. You've attached your identity to it and you're willing to actually make yourself unhappy just to maintain this identity of a wise person. And it's like, that is a dangerous place to be. That is a very dangerous place to be in from experience, but also from seeing it online, from seeing it like, it's just, you can see it in so many people, like this idea of like, yeah, wisdom, unhappiness. Um, I understand the world. And that makes me unhappy, but that's my identity. I'm I'm just doomed to be smart like this. It's like wisdom is not necessarily. In fact, I would define wisdom very differently. I wouldn't say it's even linked to necessarily being unhappy. Um, that's a whole other discussion. But yeah, that's briefly sort of my idea. Don't let it rule you. You need it. You need to remember what your end goal is, and don't think that any pursuit is so valuable that you have to sacrifice yourself for it completely. Um, especially things like interests hobbies it's like you shouldn't sacrifice your entire being your life and your happiness because you need this thing in order to you know substantiate your identity or whatever mm. that makes sense yeah yeah dude that was that's some powerful stuff bro like especially the whole the whole wisdom thing and like dude it's crazy how we will sacrifice our happiness just for a perception, just for an image. I've mm. experienced that. Like, and I think that's. I think we could even correlate, like, generalize that to any sort of image. Yeah. That some people would just happily give up their happiness. Yeah. Any image. I, I. And then 
to to attain the image to then be happy, which is ridiculous. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but the question I have, Shahan, then then I guess as as it naturally leads to, like, what is wisdom? What it, what is true wisdom? True wisdom. Okay, that's a good question. Okay, let me think. Um, so it's hard to define something like that quickly, but if I just go off the way I've sort of come to define wisdom is first to distinguish it from knowledge, right? So knowledge to me would just be knowing things, having like crystallized fact in your, facts in your head or just knowing certain things in your head and just not really connecting them necessarily or even connecting them, but not connecting them in any meaningful sort of way. Wisdom, I don't know if the you know professional definitions or whatever, but wisdom in my head, I sort of, I tend to sort of try to define it by its practicality. Um, so you can know a lot and you can still be really dumb in the way you interact with the world in the way you interact with people, uh, in the way you sort of conduct yourself. So you can read like, you know, this is the, the sort of stereotype nerd archetype of like, he's read every book, um, but doesn't know how to like hold a job. So that's (laughs) that, that person I'm not going to call wise, um, the interesting thing is about that as well is usually we take, we talk about wisdom as associated with age. Um, and I think that's because in part, at least a lot of these things, it's, a, it's sort of um, cliche, but a lot of these things you have to firsthand experience. And it comes down to that sort of like that debate about like, if you explain all of the properties and attributes of like a color to somebody, but they've never seen it, do they have knowledge of that? And it's like, I'm inclined to say right now, not really. You have to be able to actually experience a lot of these things in order to know what you're dealing with. And I, I can, I, I know this for myself, like a lot of the advice I would give to somebody having read, let's say somebody comes to me with a problem they're dealing with, right? Um, I don't know, their, their pet hamster died or something. And I'm thinking, okay, how do I, I I've like, I'm thinking, okay, I've read all the books on grief. Okay. I've read every book on grief, every study. And I just tell them everything I know, all of my knowledge. But they're just left isolated because I've just given all this knowledge and stuff. Versus if I if my pet hamster has died and I go to this person and say, Yeah, me too. That happened to me as well. And I say something simple. I feel like in a lot of cases that's more effective. Um and I think that's sort of that taps into this whole wisdom idea. It's like, we have to experience these things. Um, I think, I think Kierkegaard said life is not to be understood. It's to be experienced or something like that. Or that was a separate unrelated quote, but this whole basic idea, it's like people think they can understand life by reading about it, by getting knowledge of it, but true knowledge, true wisdom to say is a sort of experiential thing. And I think that's 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 why it's very tough for some young people because they desire to be at that point where they're wise, but they're just so inexperienced and they don't know what to do with that gap. And that gap really pisses them off. And they they try to make up for it by being very like pretentious and rebellious and whatever. And then they usually like mellow out a bit because they're like, oh, you know, maybe I don't know. Um, so that's one way I'd think about wisdom. The other one, sort of like a Socratic definition would be like slowly realizing that you don't know much or, or think having the capacity to accept that you're wrong, not holding to something and assuming it has to be right. 
somebody who's wise to me doesn't mean somebody who doesn't have opinions or just doesn't want to I, I can sometimes fall into that category i don't think that's a i don't think it's a good place to be but the other extreme would be being so firmly convicted of everything that you're not willing to accept the idea that there might be cracks or that there might be other ideas that could actually you know change the way you think about truth and reality and it's it's a very stagnant place because you can't really grow without first accepting that it's possible for you to grow if you think you're already fully grown then you're not going to grow you're not going to like engage with new reality new uh perspectives charitably you'll just hear what's wrong and then you'll say it'll just affirm your own position and that's a pretty common thing that you see um so to grow really so then wisdom is experience how do you grow through experience then well it's by accepting first that you actually may be able to grow through that experience Ooh. so you have to be able to you have to be able to put yourself in a position where you're not you're not just floating around you just have no convictions at all because that's a, a that's a bad other extreme but somewhere in the middle there's a there's a place where you can have convictions you can have beliefs whatever but you have to be in a place where you know what I have faith in the fact that other perspectives, other people might be able to tell me something that I don't know, or that my experiences might be able to tell me something I don't know. I have to accept that uncertainty. And it's really annoying to be in that place because you don't want to, you want to be certain of things. Sometimes it's, it's comfortable. It's normal, but you have to be able to, I think to grow, if you want to grow, you have to be willing to accept that there's growth that is possible by accepting new perspectives and understanding them. Um, If you, if you are completely, sort of convictionless and just floating around whatever then you're just going all over the place you don't have like a stable set of identity it's a bit chaotic but if you're completely convicted and you do not want to change your growth will stay very stagnant because you're already grown what's the need to grow anymore right um so that's the sort of way i link them all together in a way yeah that's that's a really um i I really love how you you've kind of pulled and integrated it together what what finally came to me is that like I asked myself, oh, that's really cool because I, I know like the experience thing, making distinction between a crystallized thing and just like experience just knows what to do and sees and perceives more. Mm-hmm. Um, and like, you know, like being open to experiencing more would create more wisdom. Um, so like, so I guess there's that, that sense of experience plus actually being open to the to experience. And so therefore it looks like to me, like just, just from that, that the enemy of wisdom seems to be like assumption or certainty or knowing or sticking to, to mind knowledge versus opening up to experience. Was that would that be a a kind of implication or how would you how would you what would you believe is the enemy of wisdom? Yeah, okay. So there's a lot of uh, we can come up with a lot of enemies, but from what I was talking about, one of the def- definite enemies would be something like arrogance. Um, so it's like humility would be like the beginning of wisdom then to accept that you could be wrong or that there is growth or that you're not, you know, omniscient. Like you actually don't know things. You don't know everything. You could actually, there are things that are left in the world for you to know and things that would shake your convictions and things that would shake your most cherished convictions as well. That's a hard one, understandably, but sitting in that place is, is, is it's, it's how you open yourself up to those opportunities where wisdom tries to, um, or new perspectives try to engage with you. 
Um, the other thing as well, I didn't mention as well, the, the whole point of this whole wisdom thing is because I think when you think about wisdom and truth and all these, it's a very like, it's a big trend in sort of, you know, the highly rational philosophy to forget that a lot of our wisdom and truths and all of these things are very socially grounded. You know, it's like we're fundamentally working with other people here. There's, there's this whole philosophy pursuit thing. It wouldn't exist if it was just a dude walking around and empty, isolated. It's Truth is very social. It's a very social thing, um, at least in part. It is a very social thing. And so how do we grow? So we're, well, I was talking about getting new perspectives. Where do new perspectives come from? Now, people, I don't know, they have dreams or whatever, sure. Would you have a dream if you had never met another person? That's an interesting question. Uh, would you, yeah, that's that's one, one thing about, they could have revelations or something like whatever. Would you have the content to be able to form a revelation if you'd never engaged with other people? I'm going to like meta questions. Like you could maybe, if you assume that there's some sort of power beyond humans, then maybe. But the point is a lot of these perspectives that we gain, it's going to be talking to people. And it's going to be talking to people who've had very different experiences to us and them coming to us with their assumptions, which challenge our assumptions. And then we battle it out and we come to some sort of synthesis or maybe say who's right or wrong, but usually it's some sort of synthesis and like, you know, bringing in new knowledge. And yeah, so it's like that sort of social, and this, this is also linked to the whole thing of like what I said before. It's like someone's pet hamster is dead, put it bluntly. Um, and, they come to you, and they come to you and they're like, yo, um, Timmy died. Timmy's the pet hamster. Um, and you're just, you're just giving them facts and knowledge and all these truths. Um, you have to re- realize you're talking, you have to remember that you're talking to another person. We're talking to another person who has like, they're not like a robotic truth machine. They're, it's, they're emotional beings. You're an emotional being. You're meant to connect to them. And so having that shared experience of the death of a hamster is going to be ultimately a lot more meaningful in your connection and your relationships and all of these things. And some people will be like, well, facts don't care about your feelings or whatever. But I think it's a very naive distinction to completely pit facts and reason and logic and emotions and humanity apart. It's a very, very flawed distinction to make, I think. you They are very fundamentally, fundamentally interconnected, um, primarily because the fact givers are people and people are emotional. You're not going to be able to disconnect them. We talk about reason as if it's like floating over our heads all the time and we can just grab it without interpreting it through our minds. But you're interpreting it through a mind and that mind will always be connected to you know emotions and just a human sort of condition, if you will, right? So you can't completely divorce them. If you completely d- attach them, that's another thing, but we won't worry about that. But completely divorce them just kind of decontextualizes the whole project that you're engaging on the whole philosophical journey or whatever you have to be able to remember it is still a human knowledge um this whole truth seeking it is still grounded in humanity and um sort of human affairs and relationships and all that and i'm going to go off track here the other thing about wisdom and the whole humility thing what's the so what's like if you think of like the classic like i think therefore i am thing right What's like that thing you can be most certain of? It would be like your own mind or something like that. Well, not even people have crashed that. It would just be that there's thinking happening or something like that, right? And to me, that's the sort of, that's the result. And I've, I've read a lot about this. It's quite interesting. That's the sort of result of assuming that you can ground truth by just relating to yourself. 
it's like, don't worry about anything else. Don't worry about the outside world. Don't worry about other people. I'm going to just sit here in my, my little philosophy cabin and I'm going to think, what is truth? What's the, what's, what can I come up with? And it's like, I need to have self-relating certainty. Okay. How do you get self-relating certainty? What happens when you try to do that? Um, well, I can't be sure other people exist. I can't be sure what they're saying is true. I can't be sure what this person's saying is true. So I'm just, I'm just self-relating. Well, okay. What exists? Um, maybe this doesn't exist. Okay. Oh, I, I just exist. That's all. Uh, and and it it sort of comes to me it comes off as like okay you want to be like omniscient and you want certainty and you've defined certainty as the benchmark from which you will accept truth and the only way you're going to be certain given that you're in your own mind is to relate to your own mind you can't bring other minds into it because that removes that breaks the certainty thing it's like you can't be certain of other minds so don't worry about other minds so humility is then being able to accept the fact that knowledge and wisdom won't be a certain you can't use certainty as your measure right you have to be able to on faith accept that maybe relating to just myself is not the way to gain truth maybe just maybe even though i can't be certain maybe i can take a leap and entertain the possibility that a mind outside of myself or a source outside of myself can give me something valuable even though i'm not i can't be sure of it Mm. and so Humility requires faith because it means I'm not going to rely on just myself. I'm going to actually open up to the fact that others might be able to benefit me in some way. And, and so, yeah, then that's what, that's when you open yourself up like that away from certainty and you're like, okay, I'm going to take a leap of faith and have humility and accept that maybe something outside of this certainty of my own mind can give me something. That's when you open yourself up and you let other perspectives come in and you start growing like that. So that's sort of, um, I guess, looking at the sort of, structure of the humility thing and why that would be required for knowledge and wisdom yeah bro (laughs) once again man once again i had my mind blown and (laughs) i've totally underestimated and totally completely forgotten about um (laughs) about literally everything happening around me and relationships and learning that's incredible what an what a beautiful thing that once you drop your certainty, you look towards connection and, and relationships and relationships as a pathway of discovering yourself, discovering truth and, and humility leading to connection. Yes. yes. That's just beautiful. What a beautiful message. Yeah. And, um, you know, I feel like for me personally, I will forget and get caught up, like, especially when I'm by myself, just at home or kind of walking around. I think it's all about me. And I think it's like, I'm getting it all from me. But I realized all my perspectives just came from those before me. Mm. Um, very little has come from me. I've received a lot just from the world. In fact, you know, some might argue that I'm just a reception. We're only just, we are what we receive and nothing more. Some might yeah. argue that. Yeah. Um, some might argue, yes, there's a true self of, you know, I know there's there's a kind of probably a, a mix to it and there's an element of everything to it, but God, man, that's um, that's beautiful. That's really beautiful. I guess my question then is that harmonious connections. If that's if that's kind of the case, having harmonious connections and 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 feelings playing into it. Um, like I don't know about you, but I always feel that when I have good feelings in connection with others, or when my feelings are getting challenged, and I and I listen, and I, I have a new perspective. Like I feel like I I can use my feelings to kind of 
gauge things. What about you? What do you? What's your feel with feelings and social doing social things? Okay, so how your feelings would sort of alter your like perceptions of truth is, or are you asking something else? Yeah, no, I think um, I feel like it's just how how our feelings guide us, like socially, and I've heard as well that feelings are the reason why we make decisions as well. Like we we can only make decisions with our feelings. Just like I don't know if you if you ever come across the thing about feelings guiding us in, in life. So. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I actually had to write an essay about this, um, talking about how certain emotions will heavily sort of guide our actions, and then I had to link it to certain certain like emotions that are very heavy or attention grabbing, like anger, for example. Um, how they may disproportionately affect our ability to make decisions. Like you think about heated in the moment sort of thing, right? Um, and then that, how that affects someone's moral responsibility. It's a very, it's a very interesting topic. Um, yeah, no, I, I think it's undoubtable um, that feelings will sort of guide you. And I think it's just, it's the product of that sort of very high rational enlightenment sort of thinking to think that we can just think about truth without the human being part of it. And the human being fundamentally a very emotional animal sort of thing, not to completely destroy our sort of everything we have, but there is ultimately that that part is also involved. And so to think that, oh, yeah, I can I can touch objective truths and worry about all this analytical abstract stuff and not realize that it's all. I wouldn't say it's all that might be a bit reductive, but it will it will be substantially affected by your humanity. That's sort of a blunder that a lot of people historically would have made. Um and so it's important to, you know, keep that in mind. And it's it's really interesting to me the way that emotions sometimes may project themselves into our thoughts and our and the way we interpret reality. Um, and it's it's it can be different for everyone. Like for me, right, given that I engage with all this philosophical stuff, whatever, like I can I can I can see like I always talk to my friends about this, like some days I'll I'll wake up and I'm not feeling the best, and then I think about some sort of abstract problem, and I'm like, oh you know what, there's no meaning to any of this. And I start to get very existential. And I start to express it in philosophical terms. I start to express the fact that I'm just underslept in philosophical abstract terms. If I divorce my humanity from that, the fact that I've made that um, assertion on truth, and I just assume that that truth claim was the objective truth, I'd be in a very bad place because <laughs> I would forget the fact that Oh, maybe you just maybe you just haven't eaten, or maybe you just haven't slept. And sometimes there'll be times where, like, it's 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 crazy how you can have these very deep existential thoughts and truth evaluations, and not realize that something very trivial is affecting it. So, like, I can be very existential about meaning and be like, oh, there's no point. And then I'll go for a run, I'll come back, and I'll be like, maybe there is meaning. <laughs> Those two things seem very like disconnected. Because we think of truth as this, like, oh, it's not a human thing. It's it's in the it's in the stars, like it's objective truth, right? But you need to always be conscious of that. It's like our feelings will always disproportionately affect the way we make even really hefty truth claims and all these different things. Um, and you can extend that to anything. You go to politics. Oh man, like all of these different things. They're they're so heavily affected by us being the mediators us interpreting the truth to our own through our own sort of biases and all these different things it's like i always try to make sure 
if I'm feeling like, if I'm thinking a certain truth about something, and this is another thing that I think that I do, and I think humans tend to do, which is very problematic. We, I feel like we sometimes uh, generalize our current state to both the future and the past. And I think, I think Adler talks about this. So there's this, there's this feeling sometimes I'll, when I'm, when I'm really good, when I'm feeling really happy, I will look back on my past and I'll think, yeah, what a life I've lived, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, I think there's this example I think Adler talked about. It. He's like, your 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 past is shaped by your present. And mm-hmm. I was like, whoa. And then he says, and he talks about this idea of like, maybe I'm misquoting Adler, I don't know. But he talks about this idea of like, someone who's like grown up with like a very traumatic life, right? If they're in a good state currently, they look back and they will think of it as like, you know what, that shaped me. That made me who I am, right? And then other days, if they're not feeling good or if they're not feeling good presently, they'll be like, that ruined me. That's made me who I am. But look at who I am now. Like, it's crap. Um, and so it's like, that's a very interesting thing because you, you think that the past can't change. But your perception of the past is what's real about it to you. Because you're not, you're not accessing the past as an objective mediator. You're not stepping outside of your brain to look at it. You're only going to be able to see it through your brain. So in some ways, your perception becomes a major part of your reality. So how do we shape that perception then? Well, how do you feel right now? Um, and so I know sometimes if I'm feeling really happy and I look back and I think, oh, wow, this is great. Other days, if I don't feel good, I've actually had moments where I look back and like, you know what? And I think, you know what? This whole like three last months, which I've been happy, I faked it all. I, <laughs> this was the underlying thing. I was actually very not good about all the, or any of it. And I wake up the next morning and I think, well, that was silly. That was very silly. I, I have been fine. But in those moments, it genuinely feels convincing that, no, that state is what you were this whole time. And so when you look at that, then it, it just becomes clear that, okay, well, I'm not this objective observer that I thought I was. I have to be able to uh, keep in touch with the fact that and remind myself that a lot of my emotions, my feelings will affect how I perceive things. You have to check yourself with that. Because again, like I said, if you if you just assume that the truths you come up with are truths and there's nothing to them, there's no feelings, nothing like that, then you can end up in some weird places. Um, what was the other question? It was about relationships. Yeah, but dude, like, just pause on that, man. <laughs> Damn, bro. Yeah, yeah, Especially yeah. That, that point of, like, it being actually convincing, I think that's the scary bit, is that in yeah. the moment, we, we've got amnesia. We think it's just reality. It's yeah. completely what our thoughts and our consciousness has just weaved up and it has that feeling sense of, of believability or truth. And we don't even think it's belief. Um, yeah, we don't even think it's belief. Sorry, I'm just getting uh, okay. storm rated. <laughs> all good, all good. Yeah. We don't even think it's belief, right? But then like there we are, you know, like making like stupid decisions um, out of a complete illusion, you know, like out of just something that was weaved up. And I feel I like... Go, go, go for it. I want to make an epic link back, okay? So here's something I've learned, right? In those moments, when I was younger, right, you have those thoughts and you, let, let's go to that example of like you're sitting, you're not feeling good and you start generalizing it and you genuinely feel like that's the truth and your emotions guide that truth. My, my, oh, this last three months has been terrible because I've, you know, I feel bad right now. This is where the wisdom thing comes in. How? Because if you're looking for knowledge and truth, just by self-relating, just looking into yourself in that moment, you would say, oh, it is true. Like, what, what do you have in that moment? Just alone. You have the thoughts and the feelings that it's bad right now. 
And if you wanted knowledge from just certainty, what's the certain thing in that situation? How you feel in the moment? And so you're going to make a decision or you're going to think or evaluate reality in terms of that. So in those moments is where that humility and that faith thing comes in. It's, it's, where, it's where you have to consciously go against the, the certainty of your own internal state at that moment and think, I'm, I'm convinced right now by looking at myself that this is the truth. Because it feels real, right? You, you think about it, you're like, nah, this three months has been clapped. And it feels real. And you're like, nah, this has been terrible. And if you went full on, like just trusting yourself and just in get, like certainty, what do you have in front of you? The tangible facts, you just go with that. You're like, it feels terrible. That's it. So then the faith and humility comes in. It's like, what do I have in front of me? I feel terrible. I'm going to have the humility to accept that I might be wrong. That this certain tangible thing in front of me, this feeling and this truth that I feel could actually be wrong. And I will learn something from outside of myself later or soon. Like somebody will come in and somebody will do something and, or, or I'll wake up in a day or two. And right now it doesn't feel true at all. It, nothing about it feels true. And if I go with what I feel is true in my gut right now, I will end up making the dumb decision or I will end up just moping around. But that's where you have to have that faith and that humility to be like, I could be wrong right now. Everything, every fiber in my body is telling me that I'm, that this is true, but I actually could be wrong. And then you open yourself up to the possibility to grow and get better. And then you wake up the next day, have a nice meal, um, sleep more than six hours, say, and you're like, you know what? I was wrong. Would I be here without the faith and the humility I had in that moment to accept that I could have been wrong? Well, I mean, maybe, but less likely. And so that's, I just wanted to link that back because I thought about it and I was like, that's a great example practically of how that faith and humility comes in of being like, I could be wrong right now by just relating to myself and thinking about the truth that I feel. So again, just always be open to what truth may reveal, what, what truths may come up, even if you feel convicted in some moment. Yeah. That's juicy, man. I feel like that's the whole secret to it. I don't mm. know. That's what I'm thinking. Because like, I don't know about you, Shaham, but I feel like whenever, if I'm not believing anything, usually I feel pretty good. And when I feel good, I make good decisions, you know? Like, yeah. And I feel like, you know, good decisions creates a good life. I feel mm. like, you know, when I'm feeling trash and, uh, you know, like, I don't know, I don't know why I call this, but when you catch the boner, and it's there and it's sticking around, you do yeah. things to make the bonus stick around. And like you say, yeah, okay. you're feeling crap. So then you eat junk food and then it just yeah. reinforces your, your assumption yeah. to it. Yeah. You know yeah. what I mean? Um, but I feel like if you can, I don't know, get wise to it. I think that's why they call get, you know, say get wise to it. If you can get wise to it sooner, you're back in, in your, in your, your saying, you're back in your sanity. And like, I feel like in your, your sanity, you're doing good things. You make good decisions. I don't know, but what are you, you going to say? Yeah, no. So it's, it's just, it's just that, like, I remember when I was younger, you know, if I was in States like that, I was arrogant because I assumed I knew the truth in that moment. Mm. And I would make decisions based off that truth without realizing, bro, you, you've slept in like, and you're still in bed. It's 2 PM. Get up, do something about this, this problem. And I'm not exempt from that. I still have days like that. But you, you, it's like now I've sort of come to learn, like I'm able to look at myself a little bit more objectively. If I feel like, oh, you know, um, truth X or whatever, 
I'm always like, okay, that's cool and all. There's another side of me that's like, that's cool. How about you go like make some eggs or something? Have a little snack. Go hang out with a mate, you know? And then I come back and I'm like, you know what? Maybe this philosopher was wrong. And it's interesting because eggs and mates should not dictate whether a philosopher's opinion is right or wrong, but it does. They do. Eggs are very important and we don't realize it. But they, it, it's very important. It's very important. And so that's why I'm very against that sort of divorce between facts, feelings, you know, it's that's just not how we work. We have to be able to account for all these things. And you have to be able to catch yourself and have the faith and humility in certain moments that I could be wrong about this, um, this truth that I feel viscerally I could be wrong about. And this is also why I've generally been against the sort of the sort of like this idea of like always trusting your gut and your instincts. Now, there's, there's, there's one extreme. You can completely disregard your gut and your instinct and sort of divorce yourself from yourself and just become paralyzed and never trust anything. Just kind of sort of disregard your body and become too, like, robotic. I don't agree with that. And I, I would have, I used to think like that a lot more. I'm now acknowledged that the gut and the instinct or, like, these more, like, mystical, spiritual sort of inclinations, there's value to them. But then completely giving yourself into them as well and assuming that the gut is always right. It's like your third eye. I mean, uh, like you got you gotta be you gotta be a bit critical of that as well, because it could be your third eye, or it could just be the fact that you haven't had lunch. Like if your if your third eye is telling you to walk across the highway with the cars, like don't yeah, listen yeah, to yeah. it. Like, you know yeah. what I mean? <laughs> that's not gonna that's not really like truth. That's not like God speaking to you. It might just be that I don't want to reduce suicidality to the fact that you haven't had eggs, but you probably haven't had your eggs, bro. Eat your eggs, bro. Like, get checked up, have your eggs, take care of your body. Like, your body, it's it's connected to your truth. The state of your body mm-hmm. is connected to the state of your mind. The state of your mind is connected to how you interpret truth. They're all interconnected. So, eat your eggs, talk to your mates, do all these things, and then. Even then, don't be confident in the fact that you have truth, but then you can be a bit more confident, right? Mm-hmm. Function is maintained, then your ability to assess things will be a bit better. Yeah. Yeah, that's mad. That's mad, bro. That is madness. Mm. And, you, you know, I feel like sometimes as well, um, dropping when you drop out of like even rationality of things and you just have a particular urge, like just in a good, you're in a good feeling. And you have a particular urge, like stuff, but I want to do this today. I feel like good things happen then as well. Like, I, you know, I, I, but, but at the same time, it's like, I think one thing of mastery, of, of mastering, like being human is kind of knowing what, what to listen for, knowing what, what's going on, what the signals are and, and understanding yourself there, like yeah. where to get the information from in yourself. Yeah, it's, it's definitely a balance it's hard. It's, it's, it's a very complicated thing. Like sort of how to develop virtues and how to like align yourself with virtue, a virtuous character, like sort of Aristotelian sort of way of thinking about it. Um, it's like, I've always thought about it in terms of his mean, and it's probably just because of how undefined it is. Cause I don't have to stick to one thing. It's just like, yeah, the golden mean don't go on either extreme. It's like, perfect. You can apply that universally because there's no defined ends. Um, I always think about it in terms of balances. It's like you can, there's, you can sort of completely trust whatever gut you, instinct you have or completely trust 
the truths that you, your gut comes up with or that you come up with any moment and reject the fact and neglect your body and neglect your feelings and ne- neglect the humanity that you have and just be like, yep, that's it. But then you can also, I think, what's the other extreme? So that, that would be like... A just, full gut truster. A full gut truster, yeah. Like <laughs> like a full gut truster and like... No, actually, I don't think that's the right... So, because I'm thinking about like... So if somebody completely removes... I mean, yeah, actually, if they remove rationality and feelings, they become like a Ben Shapiro type and they're just like... Humanity doesn't affect how you interpret anything. We're objective, rationalistic thinkers. I'm very, very skeptical of that thesis. I don't agree with it. The other extreme would be like, we can't have truth. Don't worry about truth. Um, we're completely human animal. We're completely animals. There's no point. Like, mm. don't even worry about it. Like, live, right? Um, I used to think like that. I don't really anymore. Not just because, like, I figured that, no, there, there, there is truth, but almost sometimes because I think there must be, there has to be. That sounds like a cope, but it's it's not a cope in the sense of, like, there has to be something, although sometimes it is. But it's also, like, there has to be in order for us to function, even socially. We can't just completely, completely abandon this idea of, like, some sort of truths and become nihilists. I think that's a very bad sort of path to take. So we have to we have to subscribe to some idea of objective grounding and all this stuff, but we also have to not become so rationalistic that we forget that it's humans who are doing this abstract stuff in the first place. Um, I've sort of lost the plot here. I don't know what I'm trying to answer. Um, but yeah, Wait, what, what was the question? I'm, I'm lost. I was honestly I was honestly just enjoying um, your musings, to be honest. But like. I'm happy to to circle back to relationships because I think you were about to say something about you were about to say something about relationships. So I'm happy to circle back there if you'd like. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So you originally asked about feelings and relationships. So yeah, so this is kind of related to the idea of like another reason why facts and knowledge and all this stuff should not be just completely divorced from feelings is because a lot of the truths that we engage with are inherently social, mm-hmm. right? our political beliefs what is politics it's how you should organize society very broadly speaking that's how you should organize society society is a a group of people so it's a very social question um it's not just some abstract thing it's inherently related to the fact that there's groups of people and they should relate to themselves relate with each other in certain ways that's a social question how do i live a good life okay the question of a good life will in a very large part have to do with how you relate to people Ooh, ooh. Um, you cannot like there's no there's a sort of like i think the i think you can link this idea of like um people re- like removing the humanity from reason and think like uh there's like an objective thing that's beyond people and beyond humanity that we can tap into and i think that's where the sort of ascetic sort of religious lifestyle idea may there might be a bit of a link there which is like people who are like nah man my truth is not just human my truth is beyond like i'm gonna be i'm gonna go live on a mountain in a in a hut and i'm just gonna meditate for the rest of my life and i'm gonna tap into that highest truth and i'm not i'm both skeptical of that but i'm also sympathetic to it that's a different convo i think um but again i think it's just hard to remove that truth still from like the fact that it is ultimately to do with how you relate to people 
not ultimately, but in large part. Um, you know, ask somebody, okay, a good experiment would be ask somebody, what are the things that, um, what are your your biggest beliefs, right? So your beliefs. And I would bet like a lot of them at their root have to do with relations, not just like distinctly relationships or whatever, but like relating the way you relate yourself to the things. And a big part of what we relate to is other people, right? And so there's like, this idea like, go on. Is it like who we are in relation to others or who yeah. others are in relation to us? Yes. So there's this big idea, which I I find very interesting is that there's like, there is no self without the other, right? This mm-hmm. is sort of a classic, you know, sociological thing. Like you can't, there's no such thing as a self-relating isolated person. A lot of what we get, we get by relating to people and the distinctions between us, but also the way we grow with each other. It's sort of that sort of, you know, how do you, how do you, how do you like grow, right? Um, you have a one way to think about it. You have person A and you have person B and they come together and there's a synthesis and there's new knowledge and all this stuff. So it's a very like Hegelian idea, but like you, it's like, you have to be able to sort of synthesize with new objects. You can't just have one object and just, it grows by itself. And, and I could be wrong about that, but I, I just, I feel like that is somewhat true. The fact that, and it, it links back to that knowledge idea. It's like, you can't just have certainty and self-relating certainty as your metric from where you get truth and knowledge. If you're just sitting in a cave and you're like, I'm going to come up with truth and you're just going to link it to yourself. You're not going to worry about other people. You're just going to link it to yourself and go in like a self-relating circle. Right. What do you get? Um, well, you might get something like Descartes, like, uh, well, I know I, I, I exist. That's it. Um, and that's not to mention the fact that he would have lived and interacted with people up until that point when he had that experiment, like he still was thinking through modes of thought, which he inherited. And then he did that, right? It's not, it's not completely detached. Um, but even, even having grown up around people and inheriting different modes of thinking, the only thing he could do by just relating to himself and with certainty was like, I exist. And so then it's like, okay, well, hopefully we can do better than that. <laughs> like, <laughs> but how can we do better than that? Well, we accept that truth is not going to just be something you get to when you're sitting in a cave. We accept that certainty is not like a, a decent metric. We accept that there is some level of humility and faith that's involved. And, and then we put ourselves out there. And we we let other people mold us, and we accept that other people might give us something, even though we can't know for sure. Mm. The, the sort of extreme of like, I will be certain only is like solipsism. It's like I'm the only mind that exists; no one else exists. That's a miserable place to be, and that to me is like, it's that 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 sort of I want to call it a virus. I'm going to go really graphic here. It's a, it's a sort of disease of thinking that I, I can only gain truth if I'm certain, and the only way I can be certain is by developing truth through my own mind and by relating to myself and well, so then what do you do like we're gone well could I, I i'd like to riff off that because i, I really like what's going on here yeah because i've some of those dudes who are like chicks who go 20 years cave cave meditating yeah they they come out like it takes a long time but sometimes they come out with this realization of, of oneness that there is yeah, no self right. there is no other and then, and then, absorbed into into oneness and connection with other beings. 
but I think some, I guess some who never get it, um, they, they, they kind of, the, the other dissolves, but the mm. self stays certain. Yes, exactly. You know what I mean? And I feel yeah. like sometimes, but with the, the, the benefit of the connection model where you're like out there with people is that people will rub up and, and get into your, your, your thoughts about who you are and they will break it down until mm. there's no, no, none of you left and you're just, you're connecting. It's like, it's a beautiful gift because you see into yourself and you can release parts of yourself that weren't even true. Just like, mm. I think, cause I feel like to connect, you have to have humility. And I think humility yeah. is sometimes lessening of self. Yes, 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 yes. And I think this is all exciting. This is all very exciting for me. This is, yeah. this is the juice of it all. Yeah. So continue. yeah. <laughs> Sorry. Yeah, yeah, I agree. Yeah, no, that's, that's very true. It's that, that's a good way to put it the way you said, um, that the you remove the certainty of others but you maintain the certainty of yourself mm. and that's probably the worst place or one of the worst places to be that is that solipsistic very depressing place where you're you're just you exist and you have value and you have power and everything and the ego is there but then everyone else is diminished um, out of uncertainty and it's just like such a lonely and i'm gonna say inhumane place to be it's just not how we we ought to function, I would say. I'm gonna put an order on that. But then then there's two other alternatives. I think there's the alternative of you exist and others exist. And then there's the alternative of nothing exists, like that sort of dissolution, like we're all one. Mm. It's really interesting. I haven't thought about it enough to see which one I prefer. You have to like different days I'll give a different answer. Sometimes I think the ego is good, like it's important to have that ego. Um as long as you're maintaining the egos of others as well. Um, and then other days I, I'm feeling more sort of ascetic and spiritual and religious and be like, bro, just like destroy your ego, bro. Like, you know, like I'm <laughs> different, different modes, but it's interesting. It's definitely, it's wholly debated. And I think there's truth about, I think there's, they're very similar though, because if you think about the middle option of it's, if we define sort of, if we define some object by how it relates to something else, and not just in of itself. Like, for example, a piece of wood is not just wood because it exists isolated from everything. It is wood because it's not something else. Or it's wood because it relates itself in a specific way to the other elements around it. Oh, yeah. So, like, the color red would be meaningless if it was the only color, right? It, it's There's no point in distinguishing it. It would just be... You know? Like, it's red because it's not blue, yellow, green, this, this, that. It's it's relative or relative. Yeah, yeah. The the this the essence and there's there's different ways to think about this. I know there's definitely people who disagree, but I've come to think about sort of essences as um relations. So something's essence I think in large part has to do with the fact that it's different or it relates in a specific way to something else. In other words, you can't have a thing be that thing just by relating it to itself you know you are jacob because you are not me and you're not other people and you can relate to us and we can you know do all these different things but if you just lived alone the idea of jacob would sort of dissolve and it's like it would just sort of become meaningless it's sort of like good like you know the the cliche of like you can't have good without evil light without dark blah, 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 like this sort of thing right mm. 
what was I talking about? Um, I talked about this. I've lost, I've lost the track, bro. What's what's going on? What's going on with my, my mind? <laughs> deep into it. I just forget what I'm talking about. Um, the essence, you relative essence. relativity. Uh, essence, essence is the relativity. No, relativity. Actually, I'll leave it to you. <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah. it's you. <laughs> Uh, so essence would be defined, I think, and I'm happy to be challenged on this. I know people who would like fervently disagree with me, but I, I, I think a large part of essence can be um, is relative, or it's it's to do with relation and distinction. Um, so red is red because it's not this, 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 that. Um, I just don't know what I was getting at. I, like, there's an original point I was going to get back to. What was the broader topic we were talking about? Relationships, yes. Um, well, it's kind of like that point of relativity that it, it it its reality is based on a relational point. I feel hmm. like if you think about me, my essence. Yeah, go ahead, go ahead. Remember, okay, okay. We were talking about the the ego and the different modes, right? So, okay, cool, cool, cool. Okay, so we have those three. Uh, there could be more, but we have those three sort of modes we were talking about. The the one where the ego is certain and valued. The other is dissolved so it's just yeah the other two would be your ego is maintained but others are also maintained third option is that sort of ascetic um, none sort of thing of like my ego has gone others egos are gone so both dissolve i was going to say in relation to the relation thing like the relativity thing option one and three aren't that different why because okay if you think about middle option and you say my ego exists and others don't then you have like, this is my ego right here. Um, for the people listening, I guess, um, let's say it's 10, right? And then the ego of others is like this, so zero. So there's a difference there. There's a positive difference. There's a distinction to be made. Mm. The other option would be, so option one would be my ego is maintained, other person's maintained. So what's the distinction? Same, zero. It, it's they're the same. There's no difference. What's the third option? Both gone zero so one and three aren't necessarily that different they have the same they you could argue that they have the same effect because this somebody who's somebody who sees themselves as equal to everyone else that's going to be the guy who has an ego and also sees everyone else as having an ego or the person who has no ego and sees everyone else as having no ego and just becomes one they both lead to the same sort of effect of having a oneness as an equality you know so I think it's actually a false distinction. I think the two options are really just me and no one else, or I affirm my existence and my identity and my ego, but no one else's, versus there's an equality between my ego and everyone else's, whether that's zero or more. Well, well, what about, I'd like to introduce a fourth distinction. Yep. What about um, you, you, you don't see any reality to yourself? But then you you see the reality to to the other like you you're kind okay, of yeah 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 like you know yeah. your your importance kind of is kind of inconsequential like it's like you don't really see yourself as having yourself but you place like a beautiful kind of loving importance on on the other I think yeah. I don't know that's what are you eh? um yeah that's a good one. yeah 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 so I wasn't really thinking about it. I can see how that lends itself to sort of like self-confidence and loving others before you love yourself i wasn't really thinking about it in terms of like love and confidence but i guess you could link them in a way um 
I think it's difficult to reach that point. Not in the sense of like loving others and not yourself. That's a very common thing. But it's difficult in the sense of affirming the fact that you exist or your ontological reality and not, um, or affirming others' ontological realities and not yourself. Mm. Mainly because we experience the world through our own eyes. So it'd be very weird to be able to get to a point where you're like the opposite of a solipsist, where you're like, everything exists, exists except me. I don't know if that's a real thing. I don't know if anyone's come up with that. It would be a very strange position. Um, solipsism comes about because we fundamentally observe the world through our own eyes. And then that's the only self-relating certainty we might be said to have. It's, it would be very difficult to get to a point where you think everything is real except the observer. I That, that might exist. I've never heard of it. Um, but to link it to more like love and relationships, how would that play out? Um, how would that play out in terms of values, like valuing yourself and valuing others? That's definitely something you can see. Uh, something I often notice and I tell people, you know, sometimes... I'll have a friend who, or even myself, and you're thinking like, oh, I'm over accommodating other people, but not accommodating me. And I, and I, and I talk to them and I try to reframe the situation. I say, imagine you're, imagine you're in this room and there's three people like your friends and you listen to two of them. You ask for their advice, what they want to do. You accommodate for them and not the third person. That would be a bit weird. Like it would, it would be very questionable morally. And I say, you're doing the same thing, but the third person is yourself. Mm-hmm. so that comes it comes off as like that that's one way to think of it it's like you need to be able to people forget that they are still valuable people like we have this like thing of like if because we're looking through our own eyes or whatever we may forget that we are also actual beings in the situation and we matter too uh-huh. um, and so, yeah and so it's like okay well remember that you matter as well like you're you morally have to consider yourself as a person in that situation um and yeah, so I guess you can see how that plays off with people, you know, being pushovers, for example, or something like that. Um, yeah, that's like a brief answer, I guess. Well, then I like that. I like that a lot because it kind of it kind of brings me to another thing that, like, you know, have you ever heard that the whole thing about projection and stuff and, and, and how if you change an aspect of yourself, what what the relationships and people that you see in your life, even the relationships with like, like even just like money, your body, whatever, like it could be any, any sort of relationship. When you change yourself, those relationships are like mirrors and they change as well. Or the relationships reveal what's going on inside of us. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, no, I, I definitely agree. Um, Again, it's like, I think it's important not to completely assume everything's projection. Projection is sort of like a pop psych term. It's sort of a buzzword now, but right. it's, 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 so it's, we don't, we don't want to like, like overdo it. It's like same with like red flag projection. All these words are just overused in my opinion, but that's a separate <laughs> thing. Um, but dudes, dudes who use the word projection, major red flag. <laughs> yeah. Just, oh, yeah, bro. Like everything is projection. No, no, no. Babes, you're projecting on me. Relax. Because exactly, yeah. <laughs> um, the projective thing, right, it's 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 real and supported. But then people who overuse it and think everything is projection, you forget that it's a dyadic relationship. In a relationship, it's I'm relating to person A and person A is relating to me. So there's a mutual projection. If you just assume everything is projection, like from yourself, then mm. you've just eliminated the being of the other person. Ooh. 
gone into that mode of like I'm my ego exists, but theirs don't, and then that creates problems. If you think they're projecting everything onto you, well, you've forgotten your own role and you've just completely unbalanced it. So it's a mutual give and take uh, projection, and that's why this is sort of unrelated. But that's why when I look at two people or two parties and they're sort of in sort of conflict, I'm never looking for who's right or wrong, and I'm not looking at one person. I'm looking at the dynamic that they've mutually co-created because if two people are fighting or something right i'm not going to assume that person a or person b uh one of them is evil because that person a might be sweet with somebody else right person b might be sweet with somebody else it's always going to be this like mutual like child in between them they've come together and created a child it's a weird analogy but just let's roll with it. they've come and created a child that child is unique to them and you're going to look at that child. You're not going to be looking at either party individually. You'll look at this child that they've created. Um, I need to stop going off track. The the projection thing, yes. So the projection thing, it's like we don't want to look at one projection. We want to look at both sides projecting. So that's just like a sort of disclaimer. But then other than that, right, this whole the projective thing is definitely very true. Like somebody, somebody's state of affairs with other things will in large part reflect um, themselves but it's also the other way around um you're sort of so not only will your own internal states project onto the out but outside states will project onto you as well which is why i'm sort of against that sort of like pop psych movement of like people being extremely against validation or external stuff it's like you must be independent right it's like that is one of those acts of increasing the self and reducing the other and it creates a it's it's an unbalanced perspective, and I would say that's that's a product of our sort of increasingly atomized, individualized society in the West. People mm-hmm. think that you have to be individual, self sufficient, mm-hmm. codependent. Like people, if you go to somebody for any advice, there's some people who be like, "Oh, you're being a burden. You're doing this. You're doing that." It's like, when did we become so closed off? Like, why is why is basic decency now codependence, right? And it's like it frustrates me that. That's what I mean. It creates, it's it's this atomization, making the self the most important unit and then forgetting all the rest of it. Um, so yeah, with the projection thing. Well, well, the thing about the self, I like just making, I love that how we are so individualistic and we, we think it's the sum and summit of, of the human development. Mm. But then I love how you take it to the, the next level of, like, oh, wait, no, maybe it's not about just all being self-grounded. Like, yeah, what's up, baby? Yeah, that's yeah, yeah. me. It's about, you know, like, well, <laughs> I don't know why I just did that, but <laughs> what, if, you know, what if receiving, um, you know, like people, like you're, you're surrounding this beautiful world you've been dropped in with this, you know, society full of people. Like mm-hmm. beautiful, people are beautiful and good and like, you know, in that perspective as well. And, um, you know, I think generously, the individual kind of atom generously is probably a stage of development. It, mm. It's, but by no means it should not be the, the focus of our society of what, what everyone should become. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. And it's, that's what, that's what I mean. That's just, it's, again, it's a reflection of that stage and it's a very Western thing as well, but it's a reflection of that stage of like affirming the being of yourself and reducing the being of other people and thinking they're not related to you in any way. Mm they don't they don't have the same grounding in reality i think it's like you can kind of see the root in that it's like 
care about yourself first, then worry about others. Um, you know, it's there's this idea that like you're more real almost. You're more important. You're more, you, you matter more. But what's underneath you matter more. It's like your reality is more valuable. It's hard to put this into words, but I think you get the idea I'm coming from. Like, whereas people who've dissolved that barrier, they've sort of either broken the barrier and they're like, we're all one. Um, either by having their ego affirmed and others affirmed or just dissolving their ego and, you know, just make, becoming one with everyone. It's sort of the same process. They will feel the pain of somebody else. Um, now, I'm not. I'm not encouraging sort of like people becoming pathologically concerned with others, because that sort of thing you see is when. And I think this why. Yeah, and I think that's why it's helpful to talk about it in terms of um, ego being positive on both sides, not just ego dissolution on your side because i like to have that affirmation there i think when you when you see that sort of pathological like oh my god like somebody's hurting like i need to help them that comes from a place where your own ego is unstable and you're trying to affirm yourself through somebody else Mm -hmm. so in a way you're trying to make up for something and it's an insecurity and you can call it a projection of insecurity it's an insecurity in your own self and you're trying to still affirm yourself by affirming somebody else Mm -hmm. um Whereas somebody who's completely like been enlightened, say, and they've broken that, they've broken the separation between all things and they've become fully communal with everything and all being whatever, right? They're not going to feel pain for others because it gives them this sort of ego trip and it reinforces themselves. They'll feel it because they've genuinely, to some extent, broken down the barrier and the distinction between themselves and others. And mm-hmm. so then others' concerns become theirs others well-being becomes theirs but it doesn't make them neurotic and destroy them it's just like you see your yourself and your life and your reality in all things and you just want to uphold them all not to uphold yourself but because yourself is sort of dissolved in, in that way that distinction is dissolved and you want to uphold it all not to like you, you get what i'm saying kind of it's i love what you say like when you say diminish reality of yourself or diminish the reality of the other because i think at full reality of yourself and full reality of the other there's kind of a a a um there's just a rawness of truth of looking after yourself and deeply looking after the other even when looking after me after the other means saying no and it's just like it's like you if you fully are in with your reality and you believe in the, the worthiness or you see it you feel it it's like embodied tense you won't do anything to go against yourself and you won't do anything to go against another. It's just like everybody's included. Yeah, and it won't, even, it won't even, this is going to sound very like hippie, but it won't even feel like you won't even be saying it in the sense of I'm going to take care of myself. I'm going to take care of you. It'll sound more, it'll feel more like I'm going to do my duty and take care of what's important. I'm yeah. going to take reality because there's an equalization. There's a dissolution of the distinction between self and other and it becomes a i'm going to take care of what's important i'm going to take care of truth and the the, what's real and what has value and that is just this equal playing field of life and nature and all these things and there's no longer this arbitrary i wouldn't call it arbitrary completely but there's no longer this strong distinction of like i need to first take care of myself and then like all this right and then you naturally are able to balance it because it's like well if you can't you know, fully function in yourself, then you're not going to be able to help others. 
but it doesn't become this sort of narcissistic thing of like myself first others later it becomes how do i best and most essentially take care of reality it's by making sure all of this is functioning including this person that is me and also everyone else and you know like just trying to tap into this sort of communal ontology if you will assuming that reality exists well you know you know what you just what it's just come to mind which you kind of brought the realization upon is that it seems like to me the ego messes up both giving and receiving it it, it, it like ruins the flow altogether yeah because like an ego like oh no i can't receive that blah 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 and the ego will be like just too locked in to even think about giving or another Mm -mm -mm. and i think i think you know, if you think about a tree, if a tree was to lose its ability to give and receive, it would just die and it would yeah. stop to produce oxygen. Like it'd stop being so um, beneficial. Yeah, 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 yeah. I feel like um, if that's a, a pattern of nature and the universe, we are of the universe and nature. Mm. And, you know, like there's no there's no thought about a tree receiving carbon dioxide. Like it will just suck it up. It will take on the sunlight. Yeah, and it, yeah. It's like it's the same. It should be the same within our, our social relationships. Yeah. And if not, we just die off. Yeah. yeah. So I really love that. Yeah. And this is like, you can see this sort of idea. And I think it's rooted in a lot of the big religions of returning to a state where we just are natural state, you know, Mm. in the Abrahamic religion, that's sort of the garden of Eden sort of state where we didn't sin, which means we didn't fall off. We didn't use our free will and consciousness to fall off and make our own decisions but we were just in a natural state. And then you can see in like the Taoist uh, branch, um, there's this idea of like, I think Wu Wei, which is like in a- like action through inaction. It's like, we're not consciously exerting our own control and our egos aren't, you know, placing all these boundaries and limitations and trying to restrict or go. It's just going with the flow. It's mm. going with the natural way of things. The tree, if it became conscious and worried and vulnerable, it might clam up and be like, I'm not going to give my oxygen to you. I'm not going to do this because I have, I have precious resources, man. Like I'm an ego, like I, whatever. And then <laughs> yeah. it disrupts the whole, the whole system. And then it dies off because it's not in that natural state. It's like, you got this like very complicated ecosystem and puzzle and it's all just flowing with itself. And then that sort of free will and egoism of one of them just creates a knot in the whole thing. And the whole thing just breaks. Mm-hmm. Um, And that's like, that's that idea of like go with the flow. Like if we if we removed our egos, our strong, strident egos, we'd be able to flow a lot better. And I think that's more pronounced. Now I'm really speaking like making generalizations, but I think that's more pronounced in the sort of Western individual um, sphere, if you will, because I think individualism and egoism are rooted more closely to this like disruption and this you know covering up. And I think that causes issues because I think a lot, I think we are fundamentally, I do believe we're very social animals. We have to sort of exist socially and relate socially and not view ourselves as individuals that have to be affirmed because then it creates this ego thing of like, I'll affirm you if you affirm me. Um, it's like this transactional thing. Whereas when the social unit, the the smaller social unit isn't the individual, but something like the family or the tribe or the village or whatever, then it's like, we just flow better and we, we're just open. We we give and we take in a very effective way, like the tree gives and takes. But as soon as the ind- individual becomes the primary social unit, 
and we start thinking, oh, I'm important. I need to protect myself. And it creates that sort of individualistic sort of dynamic. Then you have that tree who's like, no, I'm not giving you oxygen. Like, get out of here, you know. And then in doing that, it disrupts this whole chain and then it doesn't receive either. And then it just dies off. And, Um, you know, I I really love this because this is where I feel like philosophy hits the ground running because, like, you look at success and, like, even, like, a Western image of success, like, you think about it, like, wealth, yeah, the the Bucati, like you know, um, you've got like a massive house. Think that that wealth was given to you by people. Like people paid money for that. People created, and like the past and history, all the knowledge created the the Bugatti. And your your house was built by laborers. It was designed, like every single step of the way. Even this, and we kind of see it like, oh, it's just all me. It's all me. But no, like in in order for you to even get anywhere close to that, there had to be some sort of exchange. Yeah, there's a relation. Yeah, exactly. There had to be. And obviously some people like scum and scam their way through it, but that stuff never lasts. We've seen it. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, a lack of integrity in in like a a relational machine or like a relational system will always be cut off eventually. Mm -hmm. Um, But, you know, like when it comes to success or, or living life of your dreams or, or getting anything, there's that classic saying of help others to become uh, successful and you will become successful. It's just yeah. baked. It's baked even into cheesy self-help, but yeah, it's, yeah. it's kind of just a, it's just a mechanism of systems. Yeah. It's, it's the golden rule, right? Do mm. one to others as you have done to you. And that's mm. the sort of the basis of like a lot of our morality. That's just that golden rule. It's in, majority of the religions it's in like a lot of the ways you think it's it's this assumption it's this challenging of this assumption that yourself your individual your person is the most important and the most real thing that should be con- taken care of it's radically challenging it by saying listen tree i know you're scared and i know you're trying to protect yourself whatever but you need to actually the natural state of things is a dissolution to some extent of the ego and this sort of hard individualism. The natural state of things is where you actually give up this like barrier that you have against everything else. And you actually allow yourself to be vulnerable in a way to mm. the other. And you'll find that sort of do up to unto others as you'd have done to you. At first you're like, this is a dumb idea. Like why would I willingly give up my resources and willingly like threaten my like life and the the idea that's being challenged is like well if you actually give up your life you'll return you'll receive it back and um, yeah and it, it, it's actually the source of life of reality is not grounded in just you as an individual you actually have to give it up in order to receive it back and it's gonna it's a relational thing and you have to be vulnerable you have to be open and again, this comes down to the faith and humility thing, the humility to be able to accept the other rather than the certainty of self-relation. Because I think self-relation negates itself. If you just, you're just bouncing back between yourself, you will eventually just crumble and cease to exist. So to really affirm life, you actually have to do the thing that seems risky to life and break that individual gap and have faith in the other and give yourself to other people and love and and that's that's the root of love. The the root of love is risk. It's it's opening yourself up 
it's, it's it's willing willingly opening you like exposing yourself to be shot but it's only by allowing yourself to be open and shot that somebody can actually come and give you a hug right and if you're if you're not willing to get shot you're not gonna get hugged either and you'll die anyway mm. so you, it's 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 this paradox it's this great paradox that you have to be willing to do the thing that seems on surface to be threatening you the most in order to receive what it is that you're trying to, you know, do and receive life. You have to accept death to receive life, basically. Oh, yeah, bro. I love that. It's like open up to life. Like mm. you are open and open up. And I feel like as well, like if you separate yourself, you become weak. But with with if you tap into something greater than yourself, whether that just even be your internet, yeah. Or like your friends or your family or your work or your team or your society, you get to use the requisite power of all of it. Like yeah. a, a being that has the whole world on their side is far more powerful than a being who's completely shut off. Yeah. In fact, I would say a being who has nature and the like just in harmony with nature and the universe can draw on like everything. Now I think that's that's power and it takes humility to get there. Humility and risk. Yeah. Know? Right? Like assuming so it's like being is affirmed by relation. So being would be affirmed and you'd get closer to true being, if you want to use that word, by actually relating to and being in harmony with what seems like something that's opposed to you. But no, you actually have to realize that it's not opposed to you. It's there's it's a bit of an illusion to think that you're distinct. There's a there's a it's the distinction is not as strong as it seems. And that's the sort of thing where it's like risk, be humble, have faith in the fact that by affirming that which you may think will destroy you, you'll actually become more alive. And it's like it's this blind leap. And it's 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 crazy it's it's crazy how you see this like expressed in some of like the great myths and religions, like there's this, there's this idea that you have to go down before you go up. It's just so universal. It's so universal. Like it's built into all of our symbols. Well, okay. I won't go that far, but it's built into a lot of them. I think the, the West, the classic Western example is the resurrection story. He, he, in in the story, Jesus does, he takes the sin of the world, right? He takes everything bad in the world and he dies like the worst possible death. But only in dying that horrible death does he come back to life. And there's this idea that, you know, people have to be resurrected, or like they have to die first and then come back to life. Mm-hmm. And that if you're trying to desperately protect your life in this world, for example, in the religious vernacular, then you'll lose it. There's that quote, right? If you if you protect your life, you will lose it. But if you lose your life, you will gain it, right? Mm-hmm. And this idea, like you have to go down before you go up. You have to risk before you gain Um and that's in so many things. You see that sort of arc just played out over and over again where people have to sacrifice seemingly. They have to seemingly sacrifice everything. They have to secret, see, seemingly sacrifice their lives in order to actually receive it fully. And that's sort of, I think that taps into this idea of the dissolution between the uh, distinction between self and other. You have to give up this idea that you in yourself are the realist thing most valuable thing and you have to protect that with all your might and the only way to protect that is by affirming yourself and self-relating and not worrying about anything else you have to give up that that perception 
and have the faith to do something very risky and radical and scary and actually affirm otherness and trust otherness and then it'll come back to you and that's the beginning of wisdom and and all the other things you know this is beautiful and it trips me out even further because like the greatest risk is is the death of of what is known and the self but the reward is opening up to the infinite unknown and i would even say that not only does it just connect you to what is here right now it connects you to possibility the the potential and yes. and potential is really infinite mm. and i think like dude if 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 a mind is 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 captured and and relates to potential potential becomes your essence and it's like yeah. if the world like as if if you relate to the world then relativity becomes your essence and that's kind of more true a more true essence than some limiting you know yeah 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 you, know? you almost become immortal because yeah. it means that if we go to that sort of classical idea of like humans um are the fact that we're mortal is our greatest source of suffering underneath everything right okay well if we want to use that sort of framework of thinking about the human condition sure we can do that um so what what do we want we, we want to be eternal and immortal we want to be like gods ourselves right so how how do we do that well if we're going to self relate and just be certain and just think about ourselves and look into ourselves always then you're negating all potential because potential is it means to 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 be able to tap into potential you have to be you have to tap into that which can change it's an uncertain area potentiality inherently i think has to do with like uncertainty it's like things can change things can be different but if you're self relating only you're just looking at yourself and you're just affirming your own ego there's no potential in that you're not really growing in any direction which is like what i said at the start you're not growing in like being in dialogue with the rest of nature or the other um and so to be in potential then it means to be infinitely growing and it means to be accepting that there's always something out there that you can still tap into and to mm-hmm. still keep growing and still keep getting that and that places you in an almost immortal position because you'll never be just content or stagnant there's always going to be the possibility of something more mm-hmm. and you'll always be willing to go out and get that and you'll always be willing to accept that and entertain that and put yourself there and in a way you indirectly then become eternal in some sense um and then the opposite of that would be self relation which would be sort of like death because it's like that's stagnation that's where the that's where the heart monitor sort of flatlines it's like there's nothing else you can do at that point and that's that's death that's stagnation you know no movement and you know I, what just a funny thing that just came to my mind around all of that is that your your relationship becomes your reality like yes. like that reality of death is your relationship with yourself yeah but your reality of life of infinite life mm. is based on your relationship with the with the unknown or, or the like even if it's with nothing nothing yeah. is potential it's just pure yeah. potential yeah. and i think if you relate and your reality is potential you will do different things in the world yes yeah so yeah that's that's the sort of myth i'm trying to i think trying to and maybe not even myth but just mode of thinking i want to destroy completely is um <laughs> the idea that reality is to be found in the self or that the individual is the highest unit of reality it's like the highest 
like the realist being. And it's rooted into a lot of modern Western philosophy that the individual is sort of like the starting point. You start the individual. That's where you get truth or whatever. And that's where you, that's where we go from. But it's like, no, 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 I don't think so. I, I think we, there's this idea of like a communal ontology. The fact that what is real or what being is communal and relational. And that's sort of what we're saying. Like reality becomes more affirmed through the, the affirmation of otherness. But in order to affirm otherness, you have to have faith and you have to jump and you have to leap into it because you can't affirm the other. Um, the only way to do it without faith would to be have certainty. But it's in the other is inherently uncertain. And so then faith is required to make that leap into otherness, into other people, into reality itself. And when you take that leap, you ultimately affirm reality and being more than you would in the sort of circular self-relation of just yourself and yourself. It just sort of negates and collapses in on itself. Yeah. What an inspiring and worthy message to be shared. Like for real. Yeah. And and that's sort of the, the root of love, right? A lot of people have this intuitive sense that love, if is not if it's not the most important thing, it's one of the most important things. It's like the root. How do you love? How do you love? What does it mean to love? It means to me, it is an act of risk and faith. It, it is an act of affirming the other, um, despite what it might do to you as an individual. It, it's a, it's an act of collapsing your ego and destroying whatever sense of individual like pride and discomfort you have and actually being vulnerable enough to say, I'm going to risk destruction to affirm the other. And in doing so, I will be rewarded. Um, I don't. I don't say I'll be rewarded because that kind of just brings it back to like me. But it's like I'm going to affirm reality by refer, um, affirming the other. I'm going to affirm reality by affirming the other, and take that risk and make that leap, and that constitutes love. You can't love somebody if you're if you're sticking to certainties, the certainties of yourself and everything, right? It's like, yeah, somebody could hurt you. Or this person could do this to you. There's no way to make that a certain and comfortable and safe for yourself situation. Love then requires that leap. But then ironically, although we are sacrificing ourselves in some way and the certainties we have of self-relation, ironically, we end up affirming ourselves and affirming reality by taking that leap ultimately. And people who are willing to sacrifice themselves will be resurrected in the sense, you know, they will get that, that they will get being back by loving and choosing to love and then being at one with others. Right. And then, so that's the sort of, the first step is sort of realizing maybe, well, first it's paradoxical because like, you can't think of it as like, I'm going to love because it'll make me better. Cause then you're still falling into that trap of self-relation. You're thinking about yourself, but then paradoxically if you let go of that it will ultimately help you um but you have to not think of it in terms of oh yeah i'm gonna love people because that'll ultimately benefit me because then you're completely just doing the ego affirmation thing so if you're able to destroy i don't destroy ego is a bit harsh but if you're able to reduce the ego and their sort of harsh distinctions and take that leap and love and embrace otherness uncertainty anxiety that can be the most transformative thing that happens. And that, that can be the most affirmative thing that you can do 
And I think that's something that I see, especially as we become, we, we become more atomized, more individualized, and more this sort of, this sort of trend of like yourself before other. The, the golden rule is sort of reverse. It's like, um, it's not really. I don't really hear love, love others or do unto others you've done to you. It beca- it's become more of a self thing. It's like, you know, take care of yourself first. You first. You first. And there's 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 valor in that idea because it's it's targeted at people who've completely diminished themselves and held up others, which is a bad thing. We've discussed that, but if that's your mode of being and you're, it's fundamentally like you, 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 what you, like you as an individual, that's all that matters. That's a very lonely way of viewing reality. And I, I think it's ultimately self-negating. And in order to re- like avoid that self-negation, that ultimate collapse in on yourself, you have to be comfortable with eventually taking the risk of viewing reality as encompassing otherness, as well as just yourself as an individual. You know, like I feel, I feel you know the the thing that kind of excites me is that you can't truly love another without then feeling that own sort of love or sentiment flow through yourself. Mm. It's like if you love someone, you are experiencing love because you're that love is your being. It's like coming out of you. It's like if you're shining sunlight. You are the sunlight. You're you're experiencing the sunlight. Mm -hmm. And I think that's just beautiful because like you you can't, if you truly love someone, that love spills off on yourself. Like you can't help it. It, You can't, if you're giving it, it means that you're the source of it. And that means that you've got plenty of it. Yeah. And I think that's, that's beautiful. Whichever way you do it. Like if you love and forgive yourself, your heart will open to others. Or if you understand another story through your own story or and the stories and, and their connection and understanding. Like when I feel like when understanding understanding is built, which means to stand under, to be humbled, mm. love just comes. It it develops. And I don't know, I feel like there's a beauty and there's there's a grace and there's a power to one who loves. Yeah. I, feel, I really feel it. Yeah, no, that for sure. And it's it's this sort of, like I said, it's this paradoxical power of removing the power from yourself. It's 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 diminishing yourself so that somebody else may be put above. But then in that act, not always, but in that act, if it's done properly and if it's done from a genuine sort of place, it always ends up affirming the person who's doing it. Um but it only affirms the person who's doing it if they're not viewing it as something that they're doing to affirm themselves. Yeah. So that's the hard part, right? It has to be authentic. Yeah, it has to be authentic. You can't, you can't be, a, you can't think of it mechanically because, again, like I said, you'd be falling into the self-asserting trap, mm-hmm. um, and then you'd still, it would still just be about you. But genuine love is a, is about removing yourself from the equation. It's it's fully about the affirmation of otherness. Now, I don't want to be misinterpreted as encouraging, sort of like. Like, I'm thinking I'd say removing your, your false self from the equation. Yeah. Because whatever not... whatever is left behind, that's just you. Like you are still left behind in loving. Hmm. But removing anything you can of yourself, that was never yourself. It was just your false self that kind of stuck around. Hmm. But I feel like the authentic self is just ever present and just there. And you yeah. can't you can't like diminish it. But yeah. you can diminish something that isn't really you but that feels like you yeah yeah and and just sort of that illusion and that hyper protectiveness that comes from the illusion of thinking that you as an individual 
are the realist reality. And you have to affirm that with all the might that you can. And that's sort of the tree thing, the tree thing. Like as soon as that tree starts to over-affirm itself and not see its connection with all things and its relationality, then it starts to clam up and not want to share because it's like, oh no, like, you know, and then it dies off. So if you remove that sort of illusion of hyper-independence and the hyper-reality of your own self, then you can start to relate to people properly. Um, Ooh, dude, I love that. Yeah, yeah. Relate to people. Yeah, that's mad. That's mad. Yeah. And in an effective way. And it's like, I, it's, this is sort of unrelated, but I was reading some of the, like, there's these ancient sort of um, medieval, mystical, religious um, thinkers like Meister Eckhart and a few others. And they're so, they're so fascinating because they talk about this idea of like removing enough of your elusive self that you no longer have to do, you no longer have to be virtuous. You no longer have to be charitable. You no longer have to love. Now they were misinterpreted because they, so the religious authorities would see them and be like, are you telling us that you don't have to come to church? What are you doing? And I think one of them was burned at the stake. So that's unfortunate. But um, <laughs> <laughs> one, of the, one of the ladies who wrote, I forgot her name, but she was amazing. She wrote about, um, she was saying basically that by removing your will, by removing the selfhood, this artificial overinflated egoism of yourself, whatever's left will just be the will of God. So it'll be just the will of pure spirit. Um, and you, and then when she's saying you no longer have to be charitable, she means that you will no longer have to do these things because they will naturally flow through you. Because whatever's left, whatever's left of yourself, it will be natural and dynamic. Like the tree who's let go of its egoism and just naturally gives off and receives. And so this 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 person who's removed this illusion of selfhood of radical self would say, and they're able to just function dynamically and a bit more naturally. It's an ideal, but it's an ideal worth striving for that that person will love and will be good and will do all these things, not because they chose to, or they will themselves to, or they had to strain towards it. They will be so at one and so in tune with who they are. They should be who are their natural sort of just with reality, just whatever. They'll be so like at tune that they will do those things automatically, naturally. It'll just come out of them, just flow. Um, and that's what that's what she meant by no, you'll no longer have to be virtuous because the virtues will just flow out of you because it'll no longer be your will, the will of God that flows through you. You'll just be an, an agent of pure spirit or whatever. And, and what is better than just living life following your natural inclinations? Mm. That's Isn't that what we want anyway? Just to be doing what we want, which is our natural inclinations, yeah. like true natural inclinations. Low state, right? Mm. Yeah. And it's it's like natural inclinations when they're removed from egoism, which is the idea. Like, they, she, I don't think she would encourage everyone to just follow the natural inclinations because our natural inclinations can be sometimes rooted in a strange way. But the idea was once you remove the egoist natural inclinations, whatever's left will just be pure sort of the way it's meant to be, if you want to say something like that. Right. And, and then that's just out of that will flow love and uh, like the embrace of otherness and all these things that are um, the antithesis of egoism and hard individualism and stuff. And I think that that's funny because that comes back to having a, a quiet mind and also having the wisdom 
to get beyond that that illusion of of self and to to really pull out and, and see how how deeply biased our senses of selves are. And I feel like that any way you're suffering, it's beautiful because it can awaken you to that. You know, mm, yeah, and it, it just it just makes everything a lot easier because you're no longer viewing reality and the you're no longer affirming reality on the basis of your own experience alone. Mm. It's like if you if you start viewing reality and you think of life and you think of the value of life and just being and everything purely by your own experience because you don't feel like one with anything, it can it can become very easy to fall into despair. Because you're you're now separated from everything, and so if you've had troubling circumstances, then that's all there is. That's all there is. That's what reality is consisted of. But if you start to do, sort of dissolve this, this this distinction, you start to see all of reality and the value of it as not just your own experiences, but just everything, experiences of everyone, nature, all these things constitute what make life valuable or make existence valuable and then you can remove this sort of narcissistic evaluation of existence as what what's good about existence oh it's the things that i'm thinking about or what i've been through you know it's like you start to realize it's not just about me and that's the thing that's like i guess it comes down to that it's just it's not about me it's not just about me that you you matter but it's not just about you and i think that's a trap um that is good to overcome yeah mm-hmm. Wow, bro, that's really touched my heart, like, for real. I've really, like, that's really rung a point in my heart, like, honestly. Like, I feel, I feel like this is why I kind of have these wisdom talks, because I feel like, you know, it, it gets me more in touch with what's true. It challenges my own perspective, you know, I get um, perspective out of it. That's the juice for me. Mm. Um, Shahan, like, dude. Thank you so much. No worries. Far out. Your depth, your depth of wisdom has been vastly satisfying and delicious. It's been <laughs> so great bouncing this together off you and just um, listening and learning. You've got a real, you've got a lot of really valuable ideas that I really loved hearing, and it was just, it was such a joy. Would before we finish it, yeah. I have a question. Like, is there anything else left on your heart? Or left on your mind that you'd like to express? Oh, um, no, I guess, I guess I've sort of like talked about it a lot this whole time. It's just that, that message, the main message of like the sort of path we took and something I'm very, very passionate about personally is this idea of we need to, all of us collectively have to overcome this idea that we as individuals are all that matter and that, the only way we can affirm reality is through preserving ourselves. And we have to break through these barriers that we create between ourselves and others and nature and all these things and sort of start to think about reality um, in terms of having faith in otherness and relationship and all these things. And I just think that the value of relationships and all these things is in some ways declining and we don't realize it, but I think that's just my main sort of main thing I really want to see happen in the world is for us to get over those barriers and rekindle the fact that the the knowledge that we have inherently, even if we don't realize it, that our being is affirmed by relationships and relationships to everything, not just people, but especially people, but to everything. And um, sort of just 
always encourage that love relationship faith and um humility all of those things fundamentally come down to disrupting self-relation or absolute self-relation all of all of the the big i think issues come down uh, i don't want to reduce it like that but a lot of the big issues in this come down to like pure self-relating and i think the more we get to a point where we try to disrupt this self-relation and we start to affirm otherness and have faith in otherness and therefore in love the more we're going to end up in a better place just universally you know i I love that because that i feel like self-relation and self and identity it's the core of of it all and i feel like um sometimes we try to make changes in our actions like in other people or in our environment sometimes we try to make changes in our mindset sometimes we try to make changes in our beliefs sometimes we make changes in value but then if you pull back deeper and further probably to one of the deepest layers that you can get it's it's who you are as a fundamental self you make one change on that level and it echoes out reverberates all the way into reality and like you know someone who who has a, a deeply selfless sense of self who would you know can can have a beautiful impact on the world we, we've seen it we read about them yeah um I, and they don't get diminished by that Oh no way! Yeah, they, it's not a it's not a zero sum. It's they don't, you know, die because of it. They they give themselves and they actually somehow become affirmed in that. Now I think that mean I think that says something. I think it says that you don't have to, you don't ultimately have to lose yourself in order to embrace otherness. Um, and, and and that that value of otherness of of receiving back love of receiving back that feeling of of you you've served or you've given love. I mean that just drives even more giving, doesn't it? Like, yeah. you know, like it, it's a beautiful cycle if we let it do its thing. Hey, yeah, and we all just bounce off each other like that, and then we'll end up like the tree and the water who provide with each other naturally without thinking about it and without just clamming up and restricting and then dying. Right? It's a natural thing. So that that's the ultimate ultimate message. There's no self without the other. You know, you you your wisdom talks right. Like you're willing to accept that self-relation isn't the way to go and I have to talk to others and gain and embrace otherness and in doing so you get to know more about truth and you get to know more about yourself and you you, you it's like you sometimes you might think people might think like oh I can only learn about myself through myself and it's like no there's no self without the other so ultimately embrace otherness risk um and ultimately that's the pathway to like love and I'd say truth otherness and the embrace of it One last thing I'll ask, actually. Yeah. I'm sorry. Oh, don't worry. <laughs> I'm, double, I'm double dipping here. No, you're good. Go and I've just been trying to kind of crack this one myself. So I'll share it to you and, and see what perspective. But like on what we should do with our lives, like say, like should we be creating things? Should we like when you know you're, you're doing enough or, or like are you, to some extent do we hold ourselves back or like or should should they kind of yeah i guess it's it's kind of like i'm asking a lot of should questions as opposed to um you know just letting my natural inclinations or my 
true or deeper inclinations, go for it. But what what is your what are your thoughts? Okay, so what should we what should we do with our lives? That would require like ten more episodes. <laughs> but um, as a brief, I guess honestly, a lot of what I've talked about would very much guide that. That for me right now, from my current perspective, I would a lot of what I've said would guide that. Embrace otherness and love and risk. Because that that accounts for so much. That accounts because it's not just risk in relationship, it's risk in anything, right? And it's only through risk and otherness and potential and uncertainty that we can actually move in any direction. Because self-relation is comfortable and it's certain because it's stagnant and stable. So if you if your plan is to go somewhere and to move. Now you can question the assumption that you have to move. Maybe that's just modernism speaking through me. Well, that's another thing. But I think I don't mean I don't think I don't mean moving in like moving up the the corporate ladder. That's not what I mean. I mean growing in any way at all. Um, if your plan is to grow and embrace and experience life for the short time that you are here, then what's required in that would be otherness and. I, I keep saying that, but it, it would require that. It would require taking a leap of faith into into otherness, and it would require taking risks, and it would require the embrace of uncertainty. And it, that that is uncomfortable. That's that's a place of discomfort. It's only by embracing those uncomfortable sort of stages that you're actually able to tap into potentiality because it's always changing, and you can always gate in something new, and you're not always going to be you know, stable in one place, you can actually keep going. And and so that's a very short, like broad maxim through which I try to always live. It's engage with potential, be uncomfortable, take risks, embrace otherness. You know, if I'm at home and I'm thinking, okay, in first year, for example, I, I would I would be at home and I was like, man, I want to just sit at home. I don't want to go out and try and make friends or whatever. I'm comfortable where I am in this self-relation I have going, in this place of no anxiety, in this place of no potential, in this place of no change. It's all stable and good. But I forced myself and I said, no, I'm going to embrace otherness. I'm going to take this risk of being hurt. I didn't want to go out there. It was annoying. It was boring. People could hurt me, whatever. But I embraced that risk. And it is in doing that and having some bad experiences too, of course, but it is in that risk and that embrace that I've ultimately come to affirm myself and reality and just everything and met some of the best people met you you know <laughs> right like if i didn't take that risk with that job if i just enjoyed my you know comfort and didn't want to grow i wouldn't have met you wouldn't have met many others you know mm. and it's like you don't see it when you're looking at the future you don't realize but these small things these small risks and these small embraces and um, grabbing of discomfort and ang- anxiety inducing things, right? It's, 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 that's where you grow. And so if you, if you, if you really want to, what you, what you want to do with life, you want to be in a place, you know, I'm not saying make yourself anxious all the time. That's not what I'm saying. Again, balance, balance is a big thing. So balance, think of that balance for everything, but embracing risk and otherness and humility and growth that is there's a there's a healthy midpoint and i think that's where 
where you have to be in life. There's not like a specific marker. Like I don't want to, I don't think there's a specific place. It's like, mate, look, once you make 30 K a year or, or mate, once you've got like three friends or once you've done this, it's, it's always going to be very contextual. So ideally I think for people, there's this middle ground of like, be willing to grow and experience ultimately as well though on the other to challenge that um relax a little bit as well you don't want to be overly thinking about this stuff and i think one of the things i've learned whilst also being proactive and engaging with life and growing and all these things like i just said to balance that remember like you can't predict all of this stuff um it's always going to be an experiential thing and you ultimately have to just live it out as well. Uh, there's this one philosopher, Kierkegaard. I love him so much. He's influenced me along the way I think about this. And he talks a lot. And there's this idea. It's a bit, it's one of his like big cliche passages. But there's this idea that he puts forth of like trying not to over understand and intellectualize life and just experiencing it. Because that's what it is ultimately. And he's like, I mentioned at the start this idea of like life isn't meant to be understood. It's meant to be experienced. You can't read your way through life. Like get out there, do stuff, which I guess kind of comes back to the, you know, embracing risk thing. Um, and this other thing he says, he's like, um, life can only be understood backwards, but it must be lived forwards. So you you don't really have a choice. If you want to understand everything and be certain and, you know, have it all figured out. Some people, you know, I'm not on the right path, like blah, blah, blah. You want to figure it out. Well, that's the point. You know, you, you're going to go, you're going to, you have to live it out and do it and, you'll only be able to have any sort of narrative over it once you're looking back and it's done. But by that point, it's the race is over. You got to run, go somewhere, right? Don't, don't be so paralyzed by getting it right that you don't move. Just move, move somewhere, move somewhere and see what happens. As long as you're moving somewhere and you have some sort of um, idea, not even, but if, if you have some sort of idea and you're just moving, you're willing to grow and accept and change and evolve don't over plan it you know and see what happens see where you end up but be moving you don't want to stagnate that's 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 what i would say but that's that's so inspirational man you've just given me like so many truth bomb clarity moments like this like this is a beautiful message like this bro this is like like what I like, I, like I, I'm I'm lost for words because like, oh. bro, I, I think about it like the richness of my life right now has been the people I've met, the conversations, the connections, and that Macquarie job, like that that thing, like did so much for me. Like the, all the connect really enriched my life. Mm. That was a risk. That was an opportunity. I took the opportunity. I met so many people. I grew from the people. I learned. Yeah. Um. I connected, and it was a risk, and it made my life so much better. And all these people, um, um, I'm blessed to have beautiful people in my life. They all enrich me and and make me a better person just by association, just by learning and, and sitting with them. Um, and as far as I see it, is that the more content you become with life the more opportunities and risks and otherness you will embrace and, and the more that expands. But mm. the other, the other part, I've fallen in love with that from how you, how you said it. I think that's, 
that's one of the most beautiful messages like I've I've heard in like in ages, man. Thank you. Yeah. So like honestly, that's like um I don't know that um like that's it. That's Yeah, it that's for me, it. That's man. It. <laughs> like you know, yeah, you've yeah, just yeah. you've knocked my socks off and oh yeah, thank you. And Shahan, like thank you, bro. I really no worries. appreciate I enjoyed it. I enjoyed a lot. It's great to talk about this stuff. Anytime, I'm happy. Yeah, honestly, man, you might need to come on for a sequel or something, or Yeah, just sequel, that would be ask great. us something. And if um if you're listening and you want to get in contact with Shahan, give me buzz me a message. I'll I'll uh link it up between um the both of you. But bro, it's just been it's really been a pleasure. And like it's when I have a conversation like this, which reminds me why I'm doing any of this, and I'm just I'm I'm beautifully grateful for it. So thank Yeah. you. Reminds you of your meaning. It affirmed being for you. See that? You It opened did, your right? eyes and you affirmed being itself. There you go. You up in here infirming this boy's being, bro. Yeah, there you go. You're throwing being on a, on a Wednesday night. I don't even know what the date is. It's Monday, whatever, close enough. <laughs> there you go. All right, <laughs> uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna hit the stuff for the recording and uh, peace out. All right. Cheers.